Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you, Mitch Horowitz, our special guest, The Seeker's Guide to the Secret Teachings of All Ages. Manley Hall talked a little bit about Atlantis, too, did he not, Mitch? Yes, he did. He, he took very seriously the thesis of there being a, a vast seafaring civilization that disappeared somewhere in, in our primordial history. And, you know, looking back on those chapters in Manley's book, induced me to want to revive a thesis that was very heavily talked about in the 1990s that was pioneered by uh, the independent archaeologist, uh, Egyptologist John Anthony West, and the geologist Robert Schock. West and Schock discovered uh, water erosion on the oldest portion of the Great Sphinx at Giza. And this water erosion indicated that uh, the timeline of ancient Egypt would have to be predated to uh, maybe 7,500 B.C., or maybe as... as or 10,000 B.C. Or 10,000 B.C., exactly. And, you know, as I was reading Manley's uh, chapters on uh, the Atlantean thesis, which were written in 1928, you know, generations before Shock and West, I thought to myself, you know, our culture has forgotten about the Shock west thesis, and it deserves to be taken up again. It was never really studied uh, beyond their research, which which occurred in the 1990s. And, you know, exploring the great monuments of Egypt and other nations is very political. It's very hard to get greenlit. It's very hard to get funding. These things are not open to study in the ways that we might assume. And I would like to see our generation take up the Shockwest thesis again, uh, because I think what they found, really, it, 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 it matches up with the timeline that, that Manley Hall off, uh, offered for uh, the possibility of an Atlantean civilization. Uh, we, you know, and we've had both of them on the program over the years, Mitch, and uh, their theories are just riveting. Yeah, absolutely, and they've never been responded to by mainstream critics. Uh, critics will always respond to them tangentially and say, well, you know, we haven't found corroborating evidence. And it may be true that we haven't found corroborating evidence, but that doesn't mean that, that West and Shock were incorrect about the water erosion they had found. That question has not been directly addressed, and you know, a generation has gone by, and we haven't studied it again, and I, I want that study uh, to be taken up again. You write about tarot cards in this book. Tell me why. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, Manley dedicated a whole chapter to the tarot deck, and tarot is just a fascinating subject because, you know, in a certain sense, the creation of the tarot deck itself goes back to the uh, early Renaissance, but the images are perennial images. They're images that speak to the human psyche. The devil, the lovers, the magician, the emperor, the king. You know, you could travel to any civilization on Earth almost from any time period, and those images would be recognizable. There's something, they tap into something basic in the human psyche. And my contention is that I think tarot is more than just a uh, uh, an allegory or, or a book of images, but I do think that when people use the cards in a divinatory way, something may be happening. I take seriously the possibility of tarot's divinatory dimensions. Uh, the great psychologist Carl Jung worked a lot with the Chinese oracle, the I Ching, which is similar to tarot in that it's a pictogrammatic uh, device that is sometimes used for divination or psychological insight. It's possible, as Jung and some of his students theorized, that when we're working with a pictogrammatic device and we lay out a spread of cards, 
we may be getting a kind of snapshot of everything that's going on at that instant in time, past, present, future. If linearity is an illusion, which is something that I argue in the Seeker's Guide, then it is possible that a photograph or a pictogrammatic device might be capturing a kind of multidimensional image just for that moment in time. That could be why tarot seems so tantalizingly relevant, so uh, sort of possible and suggestive of, of, of what the immediate future might hold. It's just a thesis, but it's something that I develop seriously in the book. You know, and I've always wondered about tarot, whether it's the practitioner or the recipient of the tarot cards who's making these things happen. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I mean, one could argue that it's just randomness, but I've had way too many experiences with tarot where I've done readings myself sometimes for people in other nations, people from whom I'm completely separated. They've asked me a question, and they've come back to me explaining that what we found is so specific and so particular to their situation that it seems to me that some kind of symbiosis occurs. And so I continue to experiment with tarot. Uh, you have uh, a chapter that you talk about mysterious beasts and natural wonders. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I, I have a theory that everything that that, 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 that that we've amassed in terms of human testimony about mysterious beasts, about UFOs, about um, you know beings that seem to be anomalous, that seem to be from other worlds, whether they're ETs or Aleutians or leprechauns or what have you, we have such a vast, vast compendium of testimony to these things. And we have concrete physical evidence, of course, uh, to the point where UFOs are now altogether mainstream. I mean, that's something that's absolutely uh, concrete in our time right now. That I think we have to start to ask ourselves questions about the physical sources of these things. And it's very possible that the answer lies in the direction of string theory and quantum mechanics. We understand from decades of experiments in quantum mechanics that multiple and infinite outcomes are possible. We only experience one outcome, but if multiple outcomes are possible, then these things have to be playing out in some other dimension of life that we don't witness. And it's possible that these anomalies that sometimes enter into our horizon, into our point of view, could be things that exist in these other serial dimensions that exist in superposition. And we occasionally crisscross with these things. We actualize them. We select them, maybe at moments of extreme sensitivity. Uh, I'm going to be talking about this more in a, a talk that I'm giving called um, Reclaiming the Damned, in which I talk about the possibility that Bigfoot, UFOs, and all anomalies are these interdimensional phenomena that we experience from time to time. It marries with string theory. It marries mm -hmm. with quantum mechanics, and people can find out about that on my social media accounts. And I don't think you could uh, you could rule that out. That's entirely possible that they're interdimensional. But uh, what yeah. social media accounts do you have? I thought you left Facebook. I did leave Facebook, and I've never been happier. I'm active on Twitter at Mitch Horowitz and on Instagram at Mitch Horowitz 23. I found Facebook was becoming a terrible drag. There's something about the tech on Facebook that seems to encourage friction. There's a kind of false intimacy that gets encouraged on Facebook. And when people are making a comment on Twitter, I know there's plenty of bickering on Twitter, plenty of bickering on Instagram. 
But when people are making a comment on one of those social media sites, they're kind of making it to the whole world. When you're making a comment on Facebook, you're making it to your circle of so-called friends. Right. It creates more intimacy. It creates more friction. And I think the platform sort of induces argument. And I closed down my accounts, and, and, and I've been happier for it. Yeah, you don't miss it, do you? Not at all. Not at all. We have to be really careful with social media. You know, really, it's part of a kind of anger economy. You know, I mean, every angry post that generates arguments and rejoinders is basically feeding a a, a tech economy that's built in part on anger. And it's something that I really encourage people not to participate in. Social media is a fundamental part of life. I'm on it all the time. But if you go on there and you participate in bickering, you're feeding into a model that basically monetizes conflict. Absolutely. And what is your 10-day miracle challenge, Mitch? Oh, this is something I'm doing right now, as a matter of fact. I've been writing about this for a couple of years. It's really simple, but I believe very powerful. Basically, you select a goal that you want in the short term. You really boil it down to a very simple sentence. You draw a grid of 10 boxes representing 10 days. For each of those 10 days... You focus on your goal as fully and completely as you can, and you bring to bear all efforts on it, outer efforts, you know, out in the world, working towards your goal, inner efforts like visualization, Mm -hmm. prayer, affirmations. And my demand in terms of this exercise is that you carry it out for 10 days and watch very, very carefully for the arrival of what you're looking for, what you're wishing for. Because my contention is we overlook miracles all the time because they reach us in ways that either seem too ordinary or that don't match our mind's eye image of what we want. There are lots of ancient myths and parables of gods or angels or deities appearing to humanity disguised as like wandering strangers. I think there's a great psychological truth in that. The things that we're looking for very often reach us, but they reach us in ways that are unfamiliar or unexpected, so we overlook them. The point of the 10-Day Miracle Challenge is to overcome that and to watch very, very intently and very, very carefully for the arrival of just what we want, but it might come in a way that's disguised, that's either very ordinary or that's very unusual. It's an exercise in watchfulness, and people have had enormous results with it. I was going to say, what happens after the 10 days? Very often, I I get letters from people all the time telling me that something that they needed critically in their lives either comes to them within the 10-day period or comes to, or the, the, the cement gets set for what they need to arrive at some time later, but they look back and they find that the events that led to whatever their fulfillment is uh, were put into motion during those 10 days. I have an article called The 10-Day Miracle Challenge that's posted at Medium, and I also write about it in uh, one of my other recent books called The Miracle Habits. You are a booster of astrology, aren't you? Yeah, I believe astrology has relevance for contemporary people. I believe the reason astrology has endured is because a critical mass of people find that it works for them. You know, just think about it. The roots of modern astrology, which has undergone a lot of permutations and changes, but the earliest roots are from ancient Babylon. The astrology that we use got codified, more or less, in in ancient Rome. It's really strange that almost everybody walking around today knows 
his or her sun sign. You know, you're a Virgo, you're a Libra, you're a Scorpio, and can tell you something about it. It's one of the oldest retentions of religious ideas, and I think people find relevance in it. Uh, there's a piece I just did with Vice News talking about the endurance of astrology, and I don't think its relevance can be written off as hucksterism or people just you know, engaging in wishful or so-called magical thinking. I think the principles of astrology, although they've undergone a lot of changes, hold relevance uh, for us in the contemporary world. That's something I explore in The Seeker's Guide. We've got lots of astrologers, Mitch, as you know, who come on the program, and i got to tell you, some of their things are pretty uncanny when they talk about the future. Yeah. You know, my contention is I believe that astrology, your basic birth sign natal astrology can offer a thumbprint of character. I just think we've seen too much testimony to that effect to write off that question. And yes, it's subjective. Yes, it can be kind of a Rorschach. So can most therapy, frankly. If I was to write off astrologers for subjectivity, I'd have to write off most therapists for subjectivity. The fact is, I I do think you're basic natal horoscope can give you a a sort of thumbprint of character. It is amazing. Now, secret societies, which Manly P. Hall, you know, contended was uh, what built the United States. uh, I think those societies are still out there, Mitch. What do you think? Well, you know, I I take a positive view of some of the secret societies as Manly himself did. You know, Freemasonry uh, really was a very serious influence among some of our founders. George Washington, Ben Franklin, Paul Revere, John Hancock, an outsized number of Washington's generals were Masons, an outsized number of the framers of the Constitution, the signers of the Declaration were Freemasons. You know, Masonry was one of the most radical movements to emerge from the Reformation, and it basically held to the idea that you could believe in one creator or one greater force, but you could have different ideas of how that greater force might exist or might be manifest in our world, and it promoted this idea that people could have different religious views but coexist within one common organization. And that principle got extrapolated on in America, that people could have different religious views but coexist within one nation. That sounds like ordinary civics to us today, but it was very, very radical during the time that the American colonies were developing, and that influence entered American colonial thought to a significant degree through Freemasonry. And I think we have to come to terms with that aspect of our history. I take a positive view of Masonry and some of the other so-called secret societies, including Rosicrucianism, including the historical Illuminati. You know, some of these groups really vouchsafed ideas about individual liberty, the personal search, mm-hmm. esoteric meaning, and that played out in our early national life. Well, didn't that really develop, too, when we broke away from Britain? Yeah, to a very good extent, you know, uh, America was founded as a, I mean, look, there were commercial interests, there were mercantile interests, but a lot of the most seminal founders of America were fleeing religious persecution in the old world. And you find this imprint, this thumbprint on our history going back to the, the 1600s, where you had mystical monks founding colonies on the banks of the Wissahickon Creek in Philadelphia. You know, this is part of our history. The Shakers were a Quaker sect that were fleeing persecution in Manchester, England. Um, William Penn was a Quaker who founded Philadelphia as the so-called city of brotherly love, a place where he believed people could gather and, 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 and coexist, even though they had different religious ideas. Um, that was at the basis of the founding of our country. And 
you know, religious heresy, religious radicalism was as much a part of American life as anything else. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.